listeners, you are tuned in to WOWD 94.3 FM, and this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday, one hour at a time, right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listeners, on this episode, we'll explore the Episcopal and Hindu traditions. You might be asking, what is the connection between the Episcopal tradition and Hinduism? Well, I'll be honest with you, I don't know. That's what we're here to find out and explore together. If you're listening to our show for the first time, sometimes we bring on folks who have worked together side by side for years, and sometimes we spin the old interfaith-ish roulette wheel and see who gets paired up, because that's life, dear listeners. We often don't get to pick our neighbors but we do have a responsibility to learn about each other so we can more peacefully live and build community together. Don't you agree? All right, that's enough of me on my soapbox. It's time to get into some interfaith-ish. Dear listeners, I'm joined this morning by two guests who are meeting for the very first time. Very excited for that. Anne Levesque is active in the Episcopal Church, serving at the local and national levels. She has just rotated off a term of being Senior Warden for Ascension Church in Silver Spring. She also serves on the General Board of Examining Chaplains, which is the body that sets the general ordination examination given to candidates for ordination. She has evaluated these exams for many years and was elected to the GBEC by the House of Bishops in 2015. In addition to her church responsibilities, Anne currently works part-time in the Computer Center of the Tacoma Park, Maryland Library. Good morning to you, Anne. Good morning. Also joining us is Jay Kansara, Director of Government Relations at the Hindu American Foundation. Jay develops and maintains strategic relationships with leaders in public policy and in various fora, including congressional briefings, interfaith and human rights roundtable meetings, and official government functions. He also serves as the Foundation's liaison to the Hindu community in the greater D.C. area. Jay is an active volunteer in his local Hindu temple and is a student of Indian classical and folk music traditions. Thanks for joining us today, Jay. Thank you, and namaste. Namaste. And since we're in your hood here in Tacoma Park, let's start with you. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your religious upbringing. Well, my father was an Episcopal priest, so I am what's called a cradle Episcopalian. Mm. Um, And he he was a a priest from what we call the Anglo-Catholic tradition, which is part of the Episcopal Church. Uh, He went to... He went to seminary at a place called Neshota House, which is a tiny little seminary in Wisconsin. Mm. Um, Some of the folks there now find themselves uh, outside of the Episcopal Church because of um, particularly conservative beliefs. But when my dad was there in the 1950s, it was a very different place. And one of the things about Anglo-Catholicism is not merely the ritual it's a, it's part of a movement that sort of brought more of what what they called catholic ritual back into anglicanism in the 1800s uh, but one thing that went hand in hand with that was a call to social action along mm. with that and um a call to serve in the inner city and he really felt that call so that was how i was brought up 
in that in that tradition in a very high church, what we call high church tradition, where there's uh, plenty of, of uh, ritual. In the Episcopal Church, one of the jokes that we make about that is in comparison with the Catholic Church, it's all the ritual and none of the guilt. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty good trade-off. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and so that's something that's important to us, but it's only important insofar as it's part of a theology that is broader than simply ritual, okay, that's, that's uh, um, looking outward to the world in service to the world. And what were some of those rituals that, as a kid, really spoke to you and, and that you uh, embraced or were excited by? Well, the, the primary one is um, the ritual of, you know, the, the service of the Eucharist, which among high church folks and among Roman Catholics, they'll call it the Mass. Mm. Um, and it is, it is a word that we'll use uh, for that, but it's, it's somewhat rare in usage to call it the Mass, but we call it the Eucharist, Holy Communion. Um, in Protestant churches, it'll be referred to as the Lord's Supper. Okay. Um, one of the things that, that is uh, unique about the Episcopal Church is that we are both Protestant and Catholic. Mm, mm. Um, and so, uh, you know, the official name is the Protestant Episcopal Church of the United States. But um, there is, uh, especially in our current prayer book, much more of what, you know, but the movement that I uh, described before where a lot of uh, Catholic ritual was reclaimed. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk okay. a little bit about some sure. of that um, some of that history and the, mm -hmm. and the culture and the terms there right. um, a little bit later in the show. But I want to I want to stick with your story. Okay. I want to hear sure. how did so how did your father's role as an Episcopal priest shape your interest and involvement in the church as a youth? Well, he was um, he was one of these folks who was always very supportive of women's ministry. Mm. And um, when I was 10 years old, he taught me how to be an acolyte, which was something that girls didn't do at that time. I'm talking about the 1960s. Mm -hmm. I've always loved that yes. word, by the way, acolyte. acolyte. It's always been, yeah. ooh, kind of <laughs> has a little tingly feeling. So define right. that term. What does that mean? Oh, well, what I mean by it in this instance is um, someone who assists the priest. And it's often a young person. It doesn't have to be a young person. It can be a, an adult. Um, but it's it, who assists at the celebration of the Eucharist, mm -hmm. bringing the elements of the bread and wine to the priest, things like that, lighting candles, putting out the candles. Mm -hmm. If it's a big service, then um, the acolytes will do things like carrying the cross mm -hmm. and the procession. Mm -hmm. Episcopalians love their processions. <laughs> we do processions. And these were and, and these were roles that you played oftentimes during yeah, your youth. Yeah, as 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 a as a child, as a young person, um, one. One uh, event that was very formative for me was in 1974. I was um, a young teenager, 14 years old, and I saw in the newspaper a little article that said, Episcopal Church set to ordain 11 women. Hmm. I grew up in Baltimore. Okay. And this, was, um, this event was being held in Philadelphia. So I called one of our youth group leaders and said, let's go. And she said, okay. 
<laughs> and off we went the next morning and somehow found this church. Hmm. And, um, you know, so I was there at this history-making moment. Of, this was the first time? This was the first time, and they were doing it sort of against the rules. Hmm. Uh, the Three of the four bishops involved in this ordination were retired bishops, um, they had no jurisdiction in that diocese. One of them, the active bishop, was a bishop from, I, I want to say, Puerto Rico. Mm. So um, it was not that diocese bishop, but they, you know, it was a, a parish church that was very supportive of them. And um, when it came time in the service, so just like in a marriage service, there's a point in the ordination service where the bishop says if anyone knows why these people mm. should not, why you know, why this should not go forward, wow. speak now. And people spoke. Wow. And it was On the really, basis of them being women. On the basis of them being women, that, that um, it, was, it was against all the rules. So... Um, it was interesting to 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 see this happen where the bishops listened they let folks have their say and then they just kind of nodded their head gracefully and said all right we're going to proceed mm. so yeah. and that and was you were just there present for for that historic event <laughs> yeah it was such it a was, cool formative experience for you as a young person it was yeah. it was very much so if you're just joining us, this is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We're talking this morning with Anne Levesque, a former senior warden for the Episcopal Church of the Ascension in Silver Spring, Maryland. My second guest is Jay Kansara, a director of government relations at the Hindu American Foundation. Jay, um, in addition to your work at the foundation, you shared that you're a active member in your local temple community. So. Was it always like that for you? Were you always an active participant in your Hindu community growing up? Uh, I would say so, yes. Uh, so I'm a first-generation Indian-American. My parents uh, migrated um, actually twice removed. They migrated to the United Kingdom first mm. in the 60s and then migrated here in 1979. And I was actually born in a, in a state called Arkansas. Yeah, I've heard <laughs> of that one. <laughs> And we uh, and so growing up, we didn't have a, a temple that we that we went to in the first few years of my life. But as I grew older, I kind of just felt drawn to the to the ritual, to the majesty of our Hindu temples with the deities ordained. Uh, sorry, uh, you know, their in their ornaments and the in the costumes per se, mm. or their you know the clothes that were worn, and then also the rituals that would take place the week, the daily worship, the uh, lamps that were lit, mm. you know, it was all, it's, Hinduism is a very visually appealing religion. Yeah. It actually appeals to all the senses, yeah. so, sight, sound. And so those those types of rituals really drew me in, and I just knew that this, this is my heritage. This is my, uh, this is where my, my people come from, for mm -hmm. lack of a better for lack of a better phrase. So for people who haven't been to a Hindu temple before, describe for us a little bit what is what does that look like? What do you what happens when you come for, you know, a normal um service during the week or or um a ritual event? Sure. So at the Hindu temple that I normally go to, which is the BAPS Swaminarayan Temple in uh Beltsville. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hindu temples are actually, uh, they're, they're misnomered as temples. That's mm. just an English word. The actual word for a temple in, in, that's most commonly used in, in the Sanskrit 
uh, language, the liturgical language of the Hindu religion, is mandir. Mm. And man means mind, dir is the word for, uh, derivative of the word sthir, so it, that means to still, so to still the mind. Wow. That mandir. is the... Yes, that is the intention of, of this place of worship. And so uh, generally in the evenings around 6.30, there's a ceremony, a, light, uh, a lamp lighting ceremony, and the lamps are waved uh, in front of the deities in worship. And that is actually symbolic of <clears throat> uh, Hindu mandirs in, in ancient times in India and in other places where they, these mandirs were actually built inside of caves. And these lamps would actually be the light in which the devotees could could uh, have darshan or divine vision of the deities. Mm. Wow, wow, that's very. I can imagine as a kid coming into a space like that that it must really be spellbinding to be be in the presence of that that sort of thing. Absolutely, and and these these mandirs and the deities are actually consecrated with uh, rituals dating back millennia, and these rituals have been uh, they they are written and drawn out in our seminal scriptures, the Vedas and others, and and so there's a specific procedure. So we can't just put up any any statue and begin worship. There has to there's a process in which that begins. And mm. so these rituals are laid out, of which I am not an expert in any way, shape or form. <laughs> we won't so, quiz you on it. So So for you growing up, was was your Hindu practice or engagement with the Hindu community more of a cultural experience or did you really have a, a close connection with the with the religious aspects of it the 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 ritual and the meaning behind that as well so I would say both uh, as a Gujarati Indian uh, my family comes from a state of India called Gujarat uh, there's a very uh, common festival in Gujarat called Navratri uh, it's actually celebrated in many parts of India and it means literally means nine nights mm. the way Gujarati is celebrated is we dance around a uh, deity of the fem feminine divine in celebration of the harvest. Okay. Uh, many of the Hindu festivals are, are derived from, you know, uh, lunar cycles and seasonal uh, mm -hmm. because, you know, it's an agrarian society, mm -hmm. of course. And, and, and I would still say these rituals have meaning because, you know, we, we derive our sustenance from Mother Earth. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I would love going to this festival. We had great music. We were dancing around, and you know, it was it was good fun. And I just I knew that I had something special because I would go, uh, especially when I was a young kid in elementary school. I would be kind of tired going to school the next day, but I knew that I had something special. And I kind of felt bad for my friends who didn't know what I was. <laughs> they oh. missed the party. <laughs> yeah, they missed the party, and you know, I got a special invite. Yeah. <laughs> So you, um, you grew up in, in Texas. And, I did. And Texas, I believe, has a, a pretty significant Indi Indian population, right? Yeah, it definitely does. Uh, Indians and Hindus generally uh, kind of conglomerate around major metropolitan areas. But even in rural areas of yeah. Texas, there are a lot of Hindus like Midland and mm -hmm. Odessa. There's a huge community of Hindu doctors, actually, that oh, yeah. migrated in the 60s and 70s who set up shop there and you know began serving the rural community right so if you got some ailments you know where to go yeah over to 
Um, so what was the scene like then for, for you as a youth, a, a Hindu youth? What, was there a, a lot of activity with other, other uh, fellow young Hindus? Was it centered around temple life or were there other spaces? So Hindu, Hindu mandirs in America began uh, adopting the Sunday service model mm. because of the mm -hmm. sheer fact that, you know, our parents were going to work during the week and mm -hmm. the only time that they would have to give us cultural and some religious education would be Sunday and the most common place to do that would be the, the Mandir. Mm -hmm. And there would be classrooms and we would have language classes, mm -hmm. uh, you know, kids would be learning Gujarati, Hindi, Tamil, uh, other Bengali, other languages, mm -hmm. and as well as some basic uh, religious uh, tenets uh, mm -hmm. of our faith so that we could begin that foundational process of exploring our spirituality. But as a kid, you know, it was obviously tailored for our level of understanding. Right, right. And as a as a teenager, did those things maintain as well? Absolutely. And they and they they gradually escalate in ter in terms of comp uh, complexity and the types of topics that are discussed in order to be relevant to our lives and the parables of the stories and the and the scriptures are kind of distilled so that they can be relevant to mm -hmm. to our daily life yeah so it sounds like you're a good kid going to hindu sunday school on the regular <laughs> I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't qualify myself in any way, shape, or form. I think I'll leave that to the there divine you. to judge. Or at least your parents. <laughs> <laughs> if you're just joining us, this is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We're talking this morning with Jay Kansara of the Hindu American Foundation and Anne Levesque of the Episcopal Church of the Ascension in Silver Spring, Maryland. And one thing that in preparation for this conversation, you um, readily corrected me on oh, is, and, and that I misunderstood, is the connection between the Anglican and uh, Episcopal churches. Can you help us understand that relationship, please? Sure. So um, the Anglican Communion was created out of the various national churches of uh, what's basically uh, former parts of the British Empire. Okay, so Mother Church is the Church of England, mm. of which the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, at this time the Archbishop is Justin Welby, he is the Archbishop of the Church of England. Um, in the United States, as a, you know, we, we had a revolution in 1776, and um, many of the people who at the time of the American Revolution were Tories were also Church of England. So some things had to happen in order to continue that church here without being part of the Church of England. Um, all the church properties here were owned, and I mean here, here, in here US. in Maryland. Oh, uh, in Maryland. Uh, were owned by the Bishop of London. Hmm. And so there was a very old law called the Maryland Vestry Act, which sort of changed the property ownership to churches in Maryland. Mm -hmm. So the vestry, we have all kinds of interesting words in the Episcopal Church, <laughs> and vestry is one of them. It is the body, it's sort of like for each parish, you have a, 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 like a board of directors, if okay. you will, and that's the vestry. Mm. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the, the title that I had up until recently held senior warden. That's simply the chairperson of the board, mm. okay? Mm -hmm. um, 
It's just some old terminology that we continue to use. Mm -hmm. But to get back to sort of this whole, um, you know, what our relationship is to global Anglicanism, basically. So the Episcopal Church was founded in 1789. um, And, uh, you know, I remember being told that some of the same folks who wrote the American Constitution wrote the Constitution and Canons of the Episcopal Church. Mm. Um, It is governed by a a triennial general convention, which is made up of the House of Bishops and of the House of Deputies, which is made up of clergy and lay people. What then are the defining principles or the philosophies of the Episcopal denomination? (laughs) Okay. <laughs> Without getting um, two in the so, weeds, if they, well, <laughs> we could well, sort of point to. Okay, so to to go back to sort of the founding theologians of Anglicanism at the time of Queen Elizabeth the mm. First, um, probably the most seminal um, theologian would be Richard Hooker, and he came up with the notion of the three-legged stool of Anglican theology. Okay. That in order for a seat to be stable, it has to have at least three legs. Okay? And these three legs consist of um, scripture, tradition, and reason. Hmm. And if any of those are missing, you're going to fall down. And they all have pretty much equal weight within those three things. You know, we have we have our tradition, and that includes things like our rituals, our patrimony of church buildings, mm. our Book of Common Prayer, which is something that's very, very dear to many Episcopalians. Um, you know, our music, things like that are all part of our tradition, um, scripture, of course, is Holy Scripture of the mm-hmm. Old and New Testaments. Um, and a lot of the rituals is being carried over from the Catholic Church. Is that is that right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And although it's kind of interesting, one of the things when the current American Book of Common Prayer is being put together um, in the in the sixties and seventies, there was some influence from Eastern Orthodox churches mm-hmm. you know it was uh some there was a lot of interest mm. in eastern orthodox greek orthodox mm-hmm. russian orthodox ritual and some of that has been incorporated into that 1979 book of common prayer mm-hmm. so, so, so another thing that's a dividing point from the traditional uh catholic church is how the episcopal church has approached issues like the ordination of women and right. lgbtq issues yes. so talk a little bit about about that please well, the um, over time, the Episcopal Church has become more expansive mm. in um, in both acceptance and embracing of um, of first of all of women's ordination, but also the ordination of LGBTQ people, and um, and that's something that in, for instance, in the Roman Catholic Church is condemned right. completely. You know, right. you can't even talk about it. And it's also something that has, in fact, caused some division in the Episcopal Church. Mm. Um, you mentioned your your father's from a, a more conservative strand of it. Well, the seminary that he went to had, had become progressively more conservative. Mm. And there are a number of... of uh, 
churches that have attempted to leave mm. the Episcopal Church. You know, they don't agree with ordaining women. They don't agree with ordaining gay folks. And so they they want to uh, take their church and, and leave. Mm -hmm. Well, well, but the property belongs to the church, mm -hmm. the Episcopal Church. And if they want to leave, fine, go ahead. But... Mm -hmm. Please don't take our property. <laughs> and the um, the courts have consistently upheld the Episcopal Church in this. So turning to you, Jay, on this theme of some differences of opinion and, and so forth, since India recently went through a, a major election, uh, we heard a lot in the news about political Hinduism. So can you help us understand the differences between what's termed political Hinduism and, and, um, and the religious practice? Sure. So... Uh... Yes, India just had the largest exercise of democracy in human history. Hmm. You had 900 million eligible voters, of which, on average, uh, they estimate 67% uh, voted. So it's six, about 600 million people voted in this election, which is huge. That's twice the population of the United States in its entirety. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, one of the defining themes that we found within the media narrative particularly in English language media around the, uh, in from Western speaking countries or Western countries, excuse me, was definitely that political Hinduism is taking over what is known as Hindutva. And if you look at the, the actual uh, issues that were being discussed by the, the party that won the, the Bharatiya Janta party or the people's party of India, who are, who are generally labeled Hindu nationalists, they were talking about development issues. They were talking about uh, electrifying villages who had never seen, you know, light, li lights at night. <laughs> they mm -hmm. they were talking about basic uh, universal income. You know, these are these are things that would probably put this party left of Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. in today's in the American political context. Now, of course, there is a cultural component of, of Hinduism and the Hindu, but the but the BJP actually won a large uh, a large proportion of Muslim women voters because they were fighting for their rights to not be victims of instant divorce, which is a practice that had been outlawed actually by uh, many Muslim countries, including even Pakistan, but for whatever reason was still a common practice in India. Um, so political Hinduism, uh, since you've posed that question, is not even clearly defined mm -hmm. there, even amongst leaders of the BJP or its membership base um, or those who tend to vote to, with that party. They don't know what that means uh, in, in each individual or each group of, of within that may have some idea, but there's no clear definition because uh, there has there has actually only been one country, one modern nation state that has defined itself as Hindu, but they no longer do so after a constitutional reformation. That was Nepal. Mm -hmm. India has actually been secular, has been a secular democracy since its inception in 1947. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that this is the, the exaggerations are extremely overblown. Mm. How did these issues in India relate then to the work at HAF that you are doing lobbying for the Hindu American community. Sure, thank you. And uh, this is actually become very relevant. Um, and 
The Hindu American Foundation is a nonprofit, nonpartisan advocacy group. We do not endorse political candidates. However, the uh, 2020 election has become a historic one for us, and part and parcel because we have a Hindu American candidate, Dulce Congresswoman Dulce Gabbard, who's uh, from Hawaii. She's actually not Indian or of Indian origin. She adopted Hinduism as a practice from uh, her mother, who be uh, who was. Uh, I think drawn to the Hare Krishna movement, which mm-hmm. is a, a uh, you know a religious movement, kind of associated with the hippie culture of the mm-hmm. 1960s, but minus the drugs, just lots of dancing and good food, <laughs> <laughs> and and devotion and and good song and good good community. Uh, we have worked with Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard in her capacity as a U.S. House member, and we are very proud of the work that we've done with her. But as a political candidate, we. We hope that we have. We are actually very proud of her that she has stood up against Hindu phobia mm. uh, and and accusations of dual loyalty. Some of which we also see in common with uh, our Jewish American friends that they oftentimes are accused of dual loyalties. Yeah. Well, this is one thing I wanted to bring up. So, what are some of the concerns of the Hindu American community, such that you are lobbying to policymakers and so forth to to let them know about your community's interests? So first and foremost, it would be just to teach them about what Hinduism is, because many don't know. Uh, there is a there's a feeling thermometer that some official group has uh, has put out there, and generally the 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 feeling towards Hindus by non Hindu people in the U.S. is about 50-50. About half are positive, half are negative, and I would say those that are negative are just because they simply don't know what this what this faith of one point something billion people mm. really is about a vast majority of whom live in india and of course with large uh, with with migration immigration opening up in the 1960s we saw a huge wave of these immigrants from india coming they were building temples there are about 700 hindu temples across the united states mm. and almost every state of the union so Clearly, we've made an impact in the United States, but we still have a lot of work to do to just educating and also uh, correcting misportrayals of Hinduism in the media. That's a key aspect of our work. Mm -hmm. This is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We've been talking this morning with... Anne Levesque, a former senior warden for the Episcopal Church of the Ascension in Silver Spring, Maryland, and Jay Kansar, director of government relations at the Hindu American Foundation. And now, as we do every episode in the second half of our program, it's time to turn our mics over to my dear guests to ask each other some questions of their own. This is an opportunity for you to ask each other anything that you'd like to follow up on about each other's spiritual journeys or life stories, anything that you were familiar with coming in today that you want to understand better about each other's traditions, anything that you realize you may have misunderstood. On our show, we seek to model constructive and respectful dialogue in the spirit of learning, while at the same time not being afraid to roll up our sleeves and get into some interfaith-ish. <laughs> so with that, I, I leave it to you. Who would like to start? I, well, I can. So right. your your description of in your childhood and in the worship spaces, the sensory experience um, sounded very familiar to me also. I mean, I think that um, at least in the part of the Episcopal Church that I grew up in, there there was it was a complete sensory experience. There was incense. 
It was a beautiful, visually beautiful church. There was amazing music, you know. I love organ music. Um, and, and uh, you know, choirs singing wonderful pieces from our tradition. And uh, all the, the movement of, of uh, you know, the, the priests and the beautiful vestments that they wear and all of that. It sounded very much what you were describing as a sensory experience of being in your temple growing up. Uh, yes, uh, I, I would say so. And I actually recently attended a service at the Washington National Cathedral. It was actually an interfaith service to commemorate the, the loss of life and the, and the very unfortunate and tragic uh, terrorist attack in Sri Lanka over mm -hmm. Easter Sunday this year. And uh, we were able to facilitate a Hindu uh, a Hindu leader actually from the Hare Krishna community to deliver the Hindu prayer at that. But the the, the beautiful vestments and the processions and the and the incense and the, the song, of course, were just very mm -hmm. captivating. So I, I definitely found the spiritual, it was a spiritually uplifting experience there. And, and mm -hmm. yes, nothing unsimilar to what we experience in some of our Hindu temples as well. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because some of what... Um, what the world at large knows about either the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Communion has to do with events like that, um, particularly at the National Cathedral, which is not a federal facility. It is the diocesan cathedral of the Episcopal Diocese of Washington, but it also serves as this house of prayer for all people, you know, but it's, um, it's completely privately funded. Um, we, you know, there are funerals for former presidents, for, you know, Senator John McCain, his funeral was there, and so forth. So for, anyone President George H.W. Bush. Yes, yeah, so anyone who has seen those has seen the Episcopal Church in action. Um, I mentioned our, our presiding bishop, Michael Curry, and it's been, I think, one year since his um, uh, famous sermon at the royal wedding which was, uh, I, I think, <laughs> it was kind of interesting to watch, especially the reactions of the people attending that service, the royal family, and their reaction to the type of preaching that Michael Curry was doing, which was very different, obviously, from what they were used to. But it was a great sermon. So one of the key... Uh, defining features of Hinduism is that there is no single founder. There's no one uh, text or, or scripture that defines the religion or mm -hmm. this way of life more appropriately said in its totality. How do you, how in your tradition would you interact on a spiritual level with someone from, let's say, the Orthodox tradition, Greek Orthodox or Syrian Orthodox mm -hmm. or um, I would say, based on your description, there seems to be a lot of similarity to the Catholics and probably mm -hmm. some, not over, not just overlap, but, you know, commonalities. Mm -hmm. And and how do you, the are there limits to where you can engage them uh, based on your personal practice or? To an extent. So in general practice, anyone who comes up for communion is offered communion. Um, there is um, a canonical requirement that that person is baptized in any tradition, okay? They can be baptized 
a, a Baptist, they can be a ba- baptized as a Catholic, anything, or Orthodox, and they are welcome to take communion in the Episcopal Church. Now, that's not true of the Roman Catholic Church and most of the Orthodox churches uh, that I know of. Um, in, in their practice, uh, they want just the Orthodox, for instance, to come forward to have, to, you know, to partake in communion. Um, so there's some differences there in, in the theology of what communion is um, and, and who, should, who should be receiving it. So those are, those are some areas of difference. But um, I, would, I would say that, uh, uh, you know, and I think, I think that most Episcopalians, if they are visiting another church, they will respect that, that requirement. And one of the similarities with uh, the Christian church is the, the act of uh, partaking in communion. We have mm-hmm. similar tradition of partaking in prasad or consecrated or sanctified food. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, in our, in our temples, they're generally open to anyone who wishes to, to partake in it. So mm-hmm. um, I wanted to ask you, have you ever been to a Hindu temple before? I've been to a couple of Hindu weddings in recent years. And when I was a child, you mentioned the Hare Krishnas from the 60s and so forth. And and yes, growing up in Baltimore among lots and lots of hippies, I went to the Hare Krishna temple a few times as, as a kid. And um, it was fascinating. The food was really good. I remember those little coconut balls that were just delicious. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was... Uh, Had I known, I would have brought you some this morning. Uh, well, <laughs> those are always welcome. You can always bring this. Right. Even if you're not on the show, Jay, you can just come by and bring it. We'll do. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, that was... So that's, that's sort of my... Other than, you know, in college, I was a religion major and read about Hinduism in, you know, in sort of reading about all different... Um, religions, but that's not the same as going to a temple, participating in the worship. I think our traditions are very experiential. There's something about the unspoken and about just the atmosphere that does create a divine presence, most certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I invite you both to a, to yeah. come to an upcoming festival at a Hindu temple nearby, and I'll uh, I'd be happy to share that with Jack, and he can share it with all the listeners, too. Great. Yeah, that would be, be great. terrific. Terrific. Well, cool. I love that we, we found some some common ground there, exploring our differences, and then also, you know, came to a place where we, we discovered that, hey, there's, a, as you were saying, Jay, the, the sensory experience in both the Episcopal and the Hindu traditions is, is very rich, and, and if you go... Mm-hmm. To, uh, to participate in some of the activities that there, you're going to have a feast of, of rituals to explore and to understand and to learn about and so forth. So that's cool. I had um, a follow-up question for both of you. I'm, I'm curious, looking at continuity and your mom, uh, did you mm-hmm. raise your, your kids in the Episcopal tradition? Is that something that they've claimed as an identity for themselves? Well, I raised them in it, and I've also raised them to think for themselves and go their own way, mm-hmm. which um, which they pretty much have. Um, and so my son, who is 30, he, um, he, he, he refers to himself as a, as a cultural Anglican, mm-hmm. <laughs> where he really embraces the culture of it, 
Um, but he's not too sure about all that Jesus stuff. <laughs> and and actually, I'd say the same is 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 true to an extent of my daughters mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I laid a foundation, and I leave it up to them mm-hmm. as to mm-hmm. whether they're what, what you know whatever they will carry on. Yeah, Jay, you're you're not a, a father yet, right? So recently married. Recently <laughs> married. Okay, so you've grown up with other Hindus. You've seen what other folks in your generation have gone through. I wonder, is it a similar experience of people moving away from the community, coming back, or is it really something that you find people have stayed in? So uh, I would say that there is a very strong cultural component of our faith and our practice that kind of pervades, you know, just family life and the way that we in the way that we interact with each other, of course, uh, you know, there's deference between uh, f- by the younger generations to the elders, particularly our grandparents' generation, and uh, and of course the grandparents are much more can be much more ritualistic or can be much more knowledgeable about these traditions. So that uh, and they do pass these down to our generation. So, for example, in in our home, we have a home altar where we set up the deities and we the similar rituals that that take place in the temples obviously to a much smaller scale also take place in the home the the daily worship the offering of flowers and and food to be sanctified by our deities uh which uh, i should bring up this point that hinduism uh believes uh, generally in one god or one pervading uh divine uh, divinity and that divinity can manifest itself has manifested itself in human form as well uh and and that and, and as well as in forms that are half human half half elephant such as ganesh and mm-hmm. and these uh deities are part of our home altar and they kind of are personalities in our home they uh, for example my my mother-in-law treats her deities as if they are part of the family she provides them food every day mm-hmm. she she uh, puts them to sleep and that is a personal relationship that she's, you know, building with, with her, with God. Mm. And I think these traditions are being passed down. They're also evolving. They're evolving for time and place and, and traditions that were relevant, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, um, particularly social customs and, you know, customs of, of you know, uh, polite society in 100, 200 years ago may not be so relevant today. Mm-hmm. So we have to adjust them accordingly. And we have to account for modern technology and how people can access some of these, uh, you know, publications or, or, you know, audio files to perform these rituals from their iPhones mm-hmm. and from and from digital technology. So mm-hmm. that's also playing a role in transforming and, and mobilizing people to be more spiritually conscious mm. and and i would also say that uh the the largest religious the largest or the fastest growing religious community in the u.s is actually the nuns the n-o-n-e-s right. those who do not particularly define themselves with any one religion but they are becoming spiritually curious so they're engaging in meditation yoga bhakti you know chanting etc and those are all traditions that are have originated in the hindu hindu way of life mm-hmm. so uh it's i wouldn't say hinduism is necessarily growing in fast numbers because people don't necessarily want to define themselves as hindu mm-hmm. in the or or i would say that those who are experimenting don't necessarily want to define themselves as one or the other mm-hmm. but i would say that the 
these traditions growing is a is a sign that uh that it's in the culture hinduism yeah it's it's just becoming part of mainstream culture mm -hmm. what what town in america doesn't have a a yoga studio right right <laughs> so you brought up one thing one final point that i want to leave our dear listeners with uh you brought up the point about deities and and that sort of leads into this question what's one thing that you feel people misunderstand about each of your traditions that you'd like them to understand better so i often give this uh give this saying to Hindu leaders, especially when I'm talking to them about, you know, mobilizing and being active in their broader community. And that is, you know, our Hindu mandirs are just as Americans as churches down the street and Ras Malai, which is a, a Indian sweet. It's like a milk based sweet. I say Ras Malai is just as American as apple pie. <laughs> that Hinduism is part and parcel of the American story. Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau were reading and quoting from the Bhagavad Gita, mm. and uh, Swami Vivekananda came to the United States in 1893, spoke at the World Parliament mm. of Religions, and he said, "My sisters and brothers of America," and to which this first, you know, sentence of his of his speech was given a standing ovation because mm. he showed the the world the the pluralistic spirit of his of his tradition. And so I would say that we're we're not an exotic culture. Uh, we we may be different than what mainstream Americans may know of, but we are part and parcel of the American story. And mm -hmm. so uh, we have four members of Congress that are Hindu American. We have dozens of Hindu leaders at various aspects of political society. We're pretty much in every industry and profession in America. Mm -hmm. And so just. Uh, Google a Hindu temple in your area, learn about us, uh, visit our website to learn more. We have a Hindu Hinduism 101 section. Mm. Uh, you can visit us at hafsite.org mm -hmm. to learn more. And uh, I'll also be providing uh, my friends today with a Hinduism to go card, oh, all right. which okay. is uh, which will that. help just, uh, you know, clear up any uh, initial misconceptions we have. Cool. And if you invite a Hindu to your next gathering, they, they may even bring you some nice sweets. <laughs> okay. um, and how about how about with you? So um, I would say that the a misunderstanding that people have, and I want to say it's about Christianity in general, and that is that Christianity is defined by its most uh, vocal people who tend to be very fundamentalist um you know you get you get people like franklin graham speaking about one thing and another and and people tend to think well this is what christianity as a whole thinks and the episcopal church is not only not fundamentalist but actively opposed mm. to that kind of fundamentalism and um you know seeks to have a much more expansive view of what christianity is what um you know what jesus stood for what jesus taught and um being being followers of jesus means seeing christ in everyone mm. in every person that we meet and when you greeted us this morning and said namaste that's that's what that says you know that you are you are uh seeing the divine in the other person beautiful um, great that's okay. a Great note to end on. Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you, Jay, for joining us. Uh, really appreciate you, you both being here today. Thanks for having us. Thank you and namaste to all. Namaste.
Dear listeners, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to thank again my terrific guests, Anne Levesque, a former senior warden for the Episcopal Church of the Ascension in Silver Spring, Maryland, and Jay Kansara, the director of government relations at the Hindu American Foundation. As always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz-Miller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher. And thank you, dear listeners, for spending your hour with us. You can find our entire back catalog of Interfaith-ish episodes across all podcast platforms. We're on social media at Interfaith-ish. So keep writing us about the interfaith you wish to dish. You can find us also at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Dear listeners, our next few episodes of Interfaithish are going to be really great. We've been busy recording some special episodes out of the studio that I can't wait to share with you. We'll be diving into a wonderfully nerdy conversation about the intersection of religion and comics. We've also got an in-depth interview with a pair of interfaith filmmakers who made the first major documentary about the early days of the Baha'i faith. And just yesterday, I recorded an amazing discussion about a group you may be surprised to hear included in interreligious dialogue. That's right, dear listeners, it's time to meet the Satanists. So stay tuned for all the great content and more that's coming your way this summer. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at TacomaRadio.org.